Hurricane Maria continues hitting Puerto Rico. After three months, the aftermath of the most devastating natural disaster in Puerto Rico has not only left the island exposed to a health emergency, but also to the utter inefficiencies by its local government, unable to figure out how to provide aid and restore the most needed resources like electricity, communications, food, water, shelter, services, and even provide accurate and reliable information regarding the victims and the needs for the more isolated communities in the central mountain range and the west side of the island. A broken system, dysfunctional, corrupted, useless. And quoting Eugenio Maria de Hostos, Política sin moral es indignidad. Politics without morals is worthlessness. But amidst adversity, Puerto Rican people is always resilient. This is a story of relief, hope, and support from the Puerto Rican diaspora in the United States to help and assist the people in Puerto Rico after the stroke of Hurricane Maria. This is the second of two parts of the chronicles of a three-week journey to Puerto Rico. Welcome to this special edition of the Radio Plasma Podcast, the Boricua Care Packages Project, A Journey of Love and Hope, Part 2, by Miriam Quiñones and Josie Valentin. I'm Johan Rashi Vega. What more perfume than the heartfelt tear that identifies the suffering of the people. ¿Qué más perfume que la lágrima sentida que identifica el sufrimiento de la gente? Tite Curet Alonso. I don't think we spoke to one person who was happy or satisfied with the response from either the local government or the government on the mainland. A lot of frustration, a lot of anger, and rightfully so. You know, folks talking about why would it take so long to figure out logistics? Why would it take so long to figure out how to do food drops in areas like Utuado, which are smack in the center of the island where the landslides that happened in Utuado were unbelievable. Utuado is the town where actually my mother was born, and um, I never lived there, but it's where my mother's side of the family's from. And... I remember as a little kid going to Utuado and driving through the curves over and over and over again to get there and knowing, you know, the risks of those mountains and those terrains. And so we definitely, you know, made Utuado a priority um, and we made sure that we went and we did. And it was by far also one of the most memorable uh, visits we had. We were able to connect with a high school teacher who is also very active as a union leader over there and I called her in the morning and I said, I'm coming today. And she said, you know, meet me here at noon. And so um, it happened very quickly. And she was able to take us to specific areas where, you know, she wanted us to bring the water filters and the other donations. And just the access to the roads was something that was just unbelievable, the lack of access. Yeah, there um, were communities that were alienated. For, uh, from the muslites. Absolutely. And so Utuado is, is actually the town where there was uh, press coverage because there were three elderly sisters. You know, there was a, a landslide in their home and the three of them died instantly. And that was the footage that we knew about from the media. When we went there and saw things, of course, for ourselves, driving on roads where you didn't know if you were driving on the road or the creek, 
you know, where they literally just blended one with the other, where there were parts of the road that literally had just slid down. That happened to me when I was in Comerio. That happened to us when we were in San Lorenzo. The visuals that stay with you of not just the people, but also the destruction. And so I was so upset when I kept seeing the media coverage, for example, here in the States, when things were, quote unquote, back to normal in San Juan and people were, you know, shopping at Plaza Las Americas. And, you know, it was like they're not paying attention to the people that are in the inside of the island that are still disconnected. And so so those logistics, the frustration with how long that took with the need for militarization in a lot of areas, that was something that really hit people hard, knowing that in the care packages that we sent, that you know we had non-perishable food items and people would say to us there was a day that I didn't know what my next meal was going to be and I literally was able to get a can of salchichas of what you sent me in that box and turn that into my next meal and go to the neighbor because they had a gas stove or they had a grill and that's how we were able to cook so again it was that that survival mode that people literally still to this day do not know where their next meal is going to come from. And when you think about the fact that we're talking about U.S. citizens, that we're talking about a population that has given so much to the United States, Puerto Ricans have fought in every war. Puerto Ricans have been a part of every single piece of culture and history. And that this is the scenario that they're in was just absolutely mind-blowing. And so those were some of the frustrations that we could definitely pick up from people when we were having the one-on-one conversations with them. I want to be able to talk about some of the characters of this story, right? That we, people we met in Puerto Rico who were of great impact to us emotionally. But before I want to say that one of the ways we connected with uh, the people in the island and were able to know who had the higher need was because Josie would look for the leaders in communities, in those communities, and through connections and next connections, third-party connections, we connect with people in those parts of the islands, those towns. And so every time we traveled to a town, we knew that we were going to meet somebody. But meeting somebody wasn't just like, okay, so, you know, meet you at 10, uh, we'll be at this plaza and it's all good. And, and, you know, 10 minutes prior, you know, you're texting, hey, I'm there. No, because there was no connection. And so you would go to parts of the island where there was absolutely no connection. You could not text. There was no Wi-Fi. There was nothing. And so we went, when we went to Utuado, She had written, so I will be at my friend's store, who is the only, uh, what's the name? Art, art framing shop. The framing shop, yes. The only framing shop in the town of Utuado. So just meet me there. We get there, and we start asking. So, uh, oh, and she said, and there's no sign because the, the hurricane took. Okay, so, and there's no color because it was full of mud. So we get to Utuado, and we start watching how the buildings, you know, the river have overflown on the street and it had raised so much that the walls of the buildings, it was about three feet filled with mud on the wall. You could see where the, the river raised. And so we get there and we find this door, but it's closed. Of course it's closed because it, you know, it got flooded. So we start asking people, hey, do you know where is this? So 
maybe two hours later, we find them by asking people around. Her name is so-and-so, she's a teacher, and she is, you know, and she's waiting for us at this framing shop. And so finally, we were ready to give up because we had no, we couldn't connect. This guy from this store, oh, I know who you're talking about. Her name is, and she's the daughter of so-and-so, and so I'm gonna take you there right now. And so he just left his shop alone and walked with us to where the framing, where the new space was. And so they took us to different parts of the island. Um, and so that's how we get, were able to connect. Visiting towns across Puerto Rico becomes a family gathering. One of the few stories I want to share is when we went to San Lorenzo, we we're going to meet someone who Edgardo Cancel had give, you know, given us her name and he said, she's my cousin. And so you just go there and meet her and she's going to, and so we connect. And so we go and we meet her and they, we come out of the car and there's, she is with her mother. She's there standing with her mother. And I said, I, you look familiar. The, the lady, familiar, and, and, and said, yes, I am Jay's mother. And Jay's mother is Jay Borges' mother, our friend Jay, who lived in, in the area in Holyoke for so many years, who did so many barrandas with us, who is our brother, who passed three years ago. And watching, seeing her there, it's like that connection. It was just amazing that we were there to help someone who was connected through, to us through our brother, Jay. And she gives me a hug when we went, you know, to the different houses. And then when we say good, our goodbyes, she gives me a hug and she, you know, very tight hug. And she says, I feel like I have a piece of Jay with me right now. It was just amazing. It was beautiful. And then we go to Vieques and we find our friend who lived here in Holyoke. And so I'm gonna let Josie tell that story. And we go to Jauco and we had sent a box to a person in El Barrio Barinas. I'm from Jauco, I am from El Barrio Almasigo Alto. And we had sent some care packages to someone who I didn't know in El Barrio Barinas, who we connected with her through other people here in Holyoke and said there's a community there who is in huge need. So we sent care packages to that address and she distributes them. And so then we're there, we're meeting the people who we sent care packages to and so making the connections. And she shows us a picture of someone who she takes one of the care packages to. She didn't tell me where. She just said, you know, this is one person who I knew had a need. And so we went and we visited him and we took a care package, the one you, the last one you sent or something like that. And then as we're traveling through Jauco, I wanted to go to my hometown. I wanted, be, I wanted to go to the house that I grew up and, you know, to tell my mother how that was, how that area was. And then we kept on driving and driving. And so we're on the street and we're seeing this family outside playing dominoes and cards. And so we stopped and there, we noticed that the guy that was in the picture that the lady from Barinas has shown us, there he was. And so we start talking to him. Before that, I had received a thank you letter from this lady. And she, in the letter, she said, your gift was, you know, the first gift we received. 
thank you so much. I don't know who you are, but I don't know if you understand my writing, but I just want to say thank you. And so I kept the letter. And so when I went to Barinas, I asked the lady, do you know who this is? Because I don't know. We don't, we didn't send a care package to them, but we think, you know, and she said, no, I don't know. So back to, you know, as we were heading up to Almasigo and we see this guy, the family, you know, playing dominoes in the front yard. And so we stop and we talk to them. And it happens to be the brother of this woman who went to school with me. And her mother was the one who sent me the letter. It just those kinds of connections happened everywhere. Everywhere we went. Somehow we were connected some way. It was truly the six degrees of separation all throughout the island. It was amazing. And so when we went to Vieques, uh, we wanted to make sure that we could connect with Manolin Silva, who lived in Holyoke for a while and was known for his awesome art with recyclable materials and uh, his music and his writing. And, you know, Manolin was a character here in Holyoke and he was a character in Vieques. And so when we decided that we were going to include Vieques in our stops, we made it a point to figure out how to locate him. Again, as Miriam said, with the challenges of no communication, no phone, no texting, literally word of mouth, as if we were decades behind and how people used to find each other, right? Before a lot of the systems that we are now accustomed to. So we took a flight from Ceiba to Vieques. It's a 10-minute flight. And we brought a suitcase, carry-on suitcase, filled with solar lamps, mosquito repellent, items that we could bring, batteries. And then we also coordinated that day to go with someone who we had met years ago in Boston through Boston Pride, who now was living in Puerto Rico because his father had passed away and he was taking care of the art gallery and his mother was very ill. And so his name is Wilfred. And when he found out that we were going, he called and said, you know, I want to definitely collaborate with you guys. And, and so we ended up arranging for this trip to Vieques. And he said, I'm going to bring some other volunteers and we're going to fill two SUVs and send them on the ferry to um, Vieques, which is, of course, a whole other complication. <laughs> and so we flew with uh, the items we could have and then they traveled on the ferry so that they could all kind of uh, drive those vehicles. And the point was to meet in Vieques so that we could do the distribution as much as we could and as quickly as we could because we had to head back the same day. We couldn't stay overnight. So while we waited for the ferry to arrive, which was going to be about two hours, as soon as we landed in the airport, very small airport in, in Vieques, there was a taxi driver outside. And the taxis in Vieques are vans, and they call them pisicorres. And so you literally get in and you tell the van driver where you're going. And we got in and we said, well, we need to go towards the ferry because we're waiting for some friends. But I want to ask you, do you know Manolin Silva? Of course I know Manolin Silva. Do you know where he lives? Of course. I'll bring you to his house. So he literally drove us from the airport to Manolin's home. Uh, he was standing outside, literally just kind of, you know, checking the weather out, just waking up, doing his thing. It was probably 8 a.m. And um, I remember Face clearly, <laughs> we, I remember clearly we pulled up in the van and he was shirtless. And as soon as we got out of the van and he saw us, he said, oh my God, I need to go put a shirt on. And so he ran inside the house, <laughs> <laughs> oh 
grabbed a shirt and then came out and gave us huge hugs. And so we ended up spending the two hours with him while we waited for the ferry. And he started filling us in on the areas that he wanted us to focus on. And he spoke to us about a lady who is almost 100 years old, who lives in Vieques by herself in a home that he has very much fallen in love with. And so her name is Doña Marciana, and um, that's what he calls her. And so he said, you need to come see Doña Marciana. You need to come see Doña Marciana. And the, the barrio where she lives is very far compared to the rest of the places we were going to, but he insisted that we go. And we did. She, at that point, was in her bed uh, with a mosquito net. The mosquito net was actually not put the right way, so the mosquitoes were inside, so they were with her. There were food deliveries on her kitchen counter that she couldn't get to because she couldn't get up on her own. There were you know, supplies that people had dropped off that you could see that she had not touched. So it was this very painful, vivid moment of the situation of elders on the island that are by themselves. And so it was literally just this kind of breakthrough moment for us of realizing that this was going to be the situation for a lot of people. And that's, that's what we faced. And, and it was a real kind of rude awakening in, in terms of, of the experience of elders after Maria. At this point, we had to make a pause. The phone went off. Miriam needs to take a call. We also take this opportunity to breathe, reflect, and then Miriam continues. The value of being together. When we were heading to Puerto Rico, my daughter, who lives in Houston, she had gone through the hurricane Harvey. She had lived Harvey, and she was trapped in her apartment for three days with no communication. And so when we decided that we were heading to Puerto Rico, she was very nervous for us, and everything came back for her. And so she was so nervous that she promised me that I, to tell her every single night, every time I, when we got home in a safe place, to give her an update of what our day was, how our day was, and to tell her, yes, I'm home and I'm safe and I'm fine. So with how forgetful I am, I decided to put an alarm on my, on my phone. <laughs> and so every night at about 8.20, my alarm goes off, and that's my cue to report to my daughters how we're doing. And so it's been two weeks that I've, we've been back, right? And I have not shut off the alarm. Every day it goes off at, eight, at eight, about 8.20, and I just give them a report of my day. And so it has become this, what was supposed to be a report of how I was doing because I was safe in Puerto Rico, have become a, a space for unity, space for us to, it's almost, you know, makes us talk to each other and talk about our everyday lives. And so I have not shut it off. So I apologize for my alarm going off. <laughs> What's next? How do we keep supporting Puerto Rico? In the three weeks I was there, there were certain words that became part of my daily vocabulary. Centro de acopio, which means the place where people bring donations or pick up donations and they get distributed. Autogestión, which is basically empowerment. 
and having folks develop systems and have them be sustainable in all ways. These were words that, these are just two examples of words that were used often. Community leaders, líderes comunitarios, centro de apoyo mutuo. Um, these were, you know, these were places and groups that were established out of the inefficacy of the government. And so when we decided that we were coming to Puerto Rico to do this work and we needed to choose small nonprofits that we wanted to give specific monetary donations to, we needed to make sure that these were groups that were doing work on the ground, that they were not connected in any way to the government, that they were literally doing the relief work, the kind of emergency response type of tasks that were needed immediately and ongoing for several weeks. And so we chose two before we left Holyoke. Uh, one was Proyecto Matria, which is based in Caguas. And I literally interviewed the executive director on the phone for quite a while to make sure that this is one of the places we wanted to bring a monetary donation to. And the other place that we chose in advance was Taller Salud, which is in Loisa. And both of these organizations before the hurricanes primarily focused on women. They worked with domestic violence victims. They worked with the empowerment of women. And then after the hurricane, they became a completely bigger thing. And so we felt very strongly that we wanted to use the money that folks had given us here to support them. When we got to Puerto Rico, we became more aware of other groups and seeing things for ourselves. We decided to have the third organization to receive a monetary donation to be Hospital del Niño. And we felt very strongly about that because we had been very lucky to receive a, a substantial donation from Holyoke Pediatrics, and we felt that it was appropriate to have it be kind of child to child. And so when you ask kind of what's next, just to give you an idea, there are still towns in Puerto Rico that are in need of the assistance that most towns needed two weeks after Maria. There's still places where they're waiting for tarps. There's still places where it's cash only. Uh, one of the last towns that I went to was Comerio, and I had to get cash so I could get gas into my rental car, you know, because the systems were down. No electricity, no internet, no credit card. Um, so the needs are very different. But when we were at Hospital del Niño, we immediately knew that we needed to kind of plan something additional for these kids. And so when we were doing the tour, we said, you know, would you guys get us a, a list of either a wish list for the kids or their sizes for clothes or shoes or because it's not really like a regular hospital. So they're in regular clothes. They're not in, in you know, the usual hospital uh, wear. And so they, they have needs for clothes and shoes. And, and so a couple of days after I returned, they emailed me a spreadsheet with all these items. And I contacted Holyoke Pediatrics and I said, would you be interested in, in being a part of this? And they said, absolutely. So, so what's next? I mean, very concretely, getting you know, these wish lists moving. Um, just on my way here to meet with you and, and do this story, 
I was in contact with that teacher from Otuado, and I said, you know, what can we get your kids? And they said they really want art supplies and they want sports balls, like they want volleyballs and basketballs and, you know, things that, that they don't have right now. And so it's things that we take for granted. It's things that our kids here take for granted. So I said to her, right now we're collecting gift cards for stores that are here are, and in Puerto Rico. Um, CVS, Walgreens, uh, Walmart. And so we're collecting gift cards and I committed to her that, um, you know, whatever we're able to collect, that part of that, you know, we will make sure to get these kids art supplies and, and sports stuff. And so a lot of it is, is kind of these individual wish lists, but the bigger picture stuff, of course, is how do we support the communities in Puerto Rico that are doing uh, these empowerment kind of initiatives for to, to be independent as much as they can, to not have to rely on the government. And then the political piece, you know, to continue to push for folks in Congress and people that are in power to be held accountable for what's next for Puerto Rico. It's not just about the reconstruction or, as the mayor of San Juan says, the transformation of Puerto Rico, because we can't really rebuild something that was a broken system, but it's also looking at what do the people of Puerto Rico want in terms of jobs and different initiatives that they can themselves be responsible for and how do we support them on that. So so it's kind of a combination of, you know, the individual stuff that's been very powerful for us since the care packages, that one-on-one, but also thinking of the big picture and, and what our role is in all that. So Josie just raised over $1,000 for her birthday just by putting it on social media. And those donations will go out to El Hospital del Niño. And so it's simple stuff like that. I was talking to my family, and so what we want to do for Christmas time, and is instead of giving gifts to each other, it would be each family would contribute a gift card to be sent, yeah, to be sent to Puerto Rico. And so little stuff, people continue to, to give, and it's little stuff that help build and fill that, that bucket of wish list that we continue to receive. The feelings after this experience, what it means to be Puerto Rican in moments like this. Miriam and I have something in, in common, which is that we are both very proud to be Puerto Ricanas, and, and we know the responsibility that comes with that in a city like Holyoke where, you know, we want to continue to be role models for, you know, our students at the college, for our community um, leaders, for young people. But I think this experience just kind of brought it to a different level in the sense of it's a reminder of the beauty and the resiliency of the Puerto Rican people. We saw that every day. And we would not have been able to have that chance and that opportunity if we had not had this experience one-on-one, face-to-face with our, our fellow Puerto Ricans. You know, one of my most powerful stories ended up happening actually after Medium left, where, you know, I, I posted about it on social media because I thought it was important to remind people that Puerto Rico is still not back to normal in any way, shape, or form, and, and that even though the media's not covering a lot of things anymore, it's important that we continue that narrative. And that story, very briefly, was the night that 
I was on my way to a friend's house and I had to stop at a CVS to buy a couple of things. And as I left the CVS, I um, was approaching my car and there was a, a woman literally, you know, next to the car and, and she was crying and she was kind of leaning on the trunk of her vehicle. And at that moment, I had a choice. I had a choice to go up to her and say, are you okay? Do you need anything? Or I could have just gotten in my car and left. And I chose to approach her and ask her if she was okay. And it ended up being that she was there with her two little boys um, who were probably ages like four and six or five and seven, something like that. They were both sleeping in the back seat of the car and she was crying. And she was crying because she said she was tired. And um, that's what we heard from so many people. I'm tired. I'm so tired. And what it was was that since Irma, she had not had electricity. And she said, I literally brought my boys here so they could sleep a couple hours in the car with the AC on, with the security, because it's a 24-hour CVS, so that they wouldn't have to deal with the heat and the mosquitoes for a couple of hours. And to me, that moment was just such uh, an eye-opener because this was a woman who had a vehicle who you know had quote-unquote enough money to you know have gas in the car to be able to run the AC and so to anyone who maybe didn't really know her or take the time to ask questions they would assume that she was fine because she was in the parking lot of a store She wasn't secluded in the mountains anywhere, you know, which is, of course, the story of so many others. But in reality, she was in pain. And um, at that moment, I just asked her if I could help her in any way. And she looked at me and she was like, well, what do you mean? And I said, I I, I just thought of the care packages and I thought of what got me to Puerto Rico in the first place. And I said to myself, I want to give this woman money. I never asked for her name. I never, you know, took a picture with her. I just felt like I needed to help in whichever way I could. I opened my wallet. I had a $50 bill that I had been carrying since I had left Holyoke. And I, in that split second thought, the cost of the supplies inside a care package was usually about 50 bucks. I'm going to feel like I'm going to give this woman a care package right now. And so I gave her the bill and uh, she was crying you could see in her face that she was embarrassed, but she was appreciative at the same time. And it was that combination of like, you know, why is this stranger giving me money? What's going on? She gave me a hug and she thanked me and she said, um, it was like a Tuesday. It was Tuesday because it was the day that Miriam had left to come back home. And she said, you don't know how important and how significant this is. I was going to wait until Friday to go grocery shopping because I didn't have money and now I can go grocery shopping tomorrow morning. So it's, it, again, it's taking for granted, you know, that we don't even know what people's situations are. And so to me, I feel that this trip was really a powerful message to all of us, Puerto Ricans and not Puerto Ricans, of this reminder that, you know, our people, there are people on our island that are still suffering. There are people on our island that have still not received what they need and the recovery from this is going to be very long and very different for everyone. So I think that that's one of my biggest takeaways and that's why I continue to have Puerto Rico at the forefront in my conversations because I feel as part of the diaspora, that's part of our responsibility. I read somewhere that Puerto Ricans, that ethnic group, is the proudest of being Puerto Rican, being of that of their own ethnic group, and it's evident in their food and in their music, culture, customs. 
And everywhere you go in the world, you will always see a Puerto Rican flag hanging somewhere on a window, on a car, bumper sticker, anywhere you go in the world. One of the most amazing scenes in Puerto Rico for me was to see the Puerto Rican flag hanging everywhere. People had a flag, every car had a flag, small, big, on their bumpers, their, their no, their lo bonete, en el bonete. On their hood. On their hoods. Construction workers with their pickup trucks, with a huge flag, you know, flying. Houses that were really damaged and all broken, they had a flag hanging on their roofs tops. Flags on top of mountains where you could tell there's nothing there, but there's the flag flying. It was a beautiful scene and a symbolism of resilience and of not rebuilding, right? Or, but it was of transformation, of pride. It doesn't matter what we're going through. We are Puerto Ricans and we will survive and we will, we will fight for our culture, for our Puerto Ricanidad. And that was, that was amazing to see. A final message for Puerto Rico's people. My message for the people in Puerto Rico is that we're here for you, we're fighting for you, and we're fighting with you, which are two different things. I think that it's time for the Puerto Ricans that are on the mainland to really step up, not just in terms of the daily kind of stuff, like, you know, we need a donation here, we need a dona donation there, but to really become part of the narrative and whatever movement comes next that is going to be for the well-being of Puerto Ricans because it's not just about the recovery process. It's, as I've said since day one, who is Puerto Rico going to be rebuilt for? And this is going to be for the long haul. So my message to my, my fellow Boricuas on the island is I'm here for you, but I'm here with you. And again, to my fellow Puerto Ricans in the diaspora, is it's time for all of us to stand up because I think what Maria and Irma did is they literally took the veil off a lot of things that people didn't want to see. In one of our conversations with the mayor of San Juan, she said this phrase which really stuck with me, which is, we can't hide behind piña coladas and palm trees anymore. The hurricanes really woke up the fact that there's a poverty on the island, there's issues with inequity, there's issues with, with so many pieces that need to be tackled once and for all. So for me, we are American citizens, but this country, this government did not treat us like American citizens. We were abandoned by our government. We were criticized by our president for ruining the budget. And my message to all my fellow Puerto Ricans in the island and here is to really get out there, to really look deeper into these systems that continue to be covered by false narrative and that are also covered by new news that detour the ear to not dig deeper into what really is going on and how this country continues to take advantage 
of our island for years and years, over a hundred years, as a matter of fact. We need to educate ourselves about the history and the politics, and we need to stop putting ourselves into political boxes that we grew up with. And we need to start looking at the important pieces that will rebuild the island for us, for los puertorriqueños, not for the Americans. And that's, that's my message to my fellow Puerto Ricans. We do want to truly thank the community who responded because without the support and the trust of our community, the ones who know us, we could have not done this. There is no way that we could have given so many donations and touched so many people in the island. And by touching so many people in the island, we touched the people here. And to the community, the gratitude and the support that we receive, we owe them a thank you, huge thank you. And so we want to, even if we get tired of telling the story, we will continue to tell it because we are very, very grateful. And so thanks for allowing us to tell you the story and uh, for the community to hear it through this podcast. This is the audio documentary, The Boricua Care Packages Project, A Journey of Love and Hope. I want to thank Josie Valentin and Miriam Quinones for documenting their work and sharing this experience in Puerto Rico and for their inspiring work of love and care. This session was recorded and produced at the Plasma Media Lab in the Gandara Youth Development Center in Holyoke, Massachusetts. And we close with another quote. Our persistence contributes to national pride. Nuestra persistencia contribuye al orgullo nacional. Ricardo Alegría. For Radio Plasma, I'm Johan Rashi Vega. Thank you for listening.